Hey Sandra, do you know that the world produces so many bullets every year that they would be enough to kill every person on this planet twice? That information alone blew my mind, pun intended. <laughs> Why can't we produce dildos instead? That way, since we're so bent on ourselves up, at least it would be pleasurable. <laughs> Okay, we're going to write a draft proposal for the United Nations Security Council. We should make love not war. <laughs> hey, Sandra. Hello, listener friends. Hello, Neil. Hi, guys. Today on Dubious, we're talking about spies, a basketball star, prisoner swaps, and the gulag, but most importantly, the merchant of death, Victor Boot, a translator turned international arms dealer who is to be part of a proposed prisoner exchange between the United States and Russia for the return of Americans Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan. I mean, if the swap actually goes through, hopefully it does. Boot has been imprisoned in the United States since 2008 when a questionable sting operation led by the DEA led to his capture in Thailand. After a jury found him guilty, the judge had to impose the mandatory sentence, but she clearly stated in the courtroom, quote, Until the DEA went after Boot, he had not committed a crime chargeable in an American court in all his years as an arms dealer. And but for the DEA approach made through this determined sting operation, there is no reason to believe that Boot would have ever committed the charges brought against him. No, but until we get there, Moscow asked for a second person in the swap. FSB agent Vadim Krasikov was convicted in Germany for carrying out an assassination there. The 2019 murder of former Chechen fighter Zelim Khan Kangoshvili was particularly brazen. He was shot three times in broad daylight in a Berlin park by a hitman riding a bike. The hitman was <laughs> the hitman was Vadim Krasikov, obviously. So now the Russians want him back, along with Victor Boot. So how did we get to the Lord of War prisoner swap scenario? Brittany Griner, a WNBA player from the U.S., was sentenced to nine years in a Russian penal colony for bringing less than one milligram of cannabis oil in a vape pen into the Moscow airport. So, yeah, this is basically a political flex on Putin's part, pretty obviously related to the Ukraine sanctions. Exactly. And nine years in a penal colony, ooh, that's, I don't know, that's a completely disproportional sentence for Brittany Griner. I mean, Nine years, that's a lot. And look, Trevor Reed, a former Marine who was also imprisoned in Russia after allegedly attacking a policeman, which did not happen, by the way, again, BS charges. Uh, Trevor Reed was recently released in a successful prisoner swap, and he said that Brittany Griner will experience serious threats to her health if she is sent to a labor camp. And this is what he said. Anyone who is in a forced labor camp in Russia is obviously, you know, facing serious threats to their health because of malnutrition. There's little to no medical attention there whatsoever. And he also said that tuberculosis runs rampant in Russian prisons and there are diseases that they have there in Russia which are largely extinct in the United States now. If you guys want to know more about the Siberian penal colonies, Check out The Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I would also suggest Cancer Word, also by Solzhenitsyn. No wonder he won a Nobel Prize for Literature. In fact, Cancer Word is the only book I read twice without a break in between. You know, like sometimes you return to a book after a few years or longer. But with Cancer Word, I finished it and then started it again the same evening. And spoiler alert, you might cry. 
But yeah, Trevor Reed is right. Russian prisons and the medical care there are a nightmare. I think he said in an interview on CNN that he could not sleep for days, a fear of being murdered in his sleep, and there was, quote, shit and blood on the walls of the cells. Yeah, that's uh, not good. So um, no. in this case, we have Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan waiting to hopefully be swapped for Victor Boot and Krasikov. Uh, Waylon is a former U.S. Marine uh, arrested on espionage charges, serving a 16-year Russian prison sentence as well. Is he really a spy? I mean, probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's a native Canadian who also has U.S., British, and Irish citizenships. Who needs that many passports? True. I mean, I have double citizenship, but only one passport just because there really is no actual need for more than one. And look, Trevor Reed was under the Obama administration protecting Biden. He was in Secret Service, but he was stationed at the Marine Barracks in D.C. and at Camp David. In fact, I think that's why the Russians decided he would be a good prisoner for them, like valuable. And thank goodness he's back home and safe now. I mean, it is what it is. Every country does this, I suppose. They all have spies. Sometimes they get caught. As uh, as our boy Omar, a.k.a. Chalky, in uh, the show you love so much on HBO might say, it's all in the game. That's a Boardwalk Empire reference, folks. <laughs> it's, it's a really good show, yeah. So totally, and we have right now Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan waiting to hopefully be swapped for the FSB spy in Germany and Victor Boot, the merchant of death, who is imprisoned here in the United States. Okay, so let's get into the story of Victor Boot. International arms dealer and inspiration for one of our favorite movies, Lord of War. Right. Boots larger-than-life reputation makes it hard to separate fact from fiction sometimes when it comes to his resume. I mean, much of his early life is unknown, but he's believed to have been born in 1967 in the then-Soviet Tajikistan. Boot was trained as a linguist at the Moscow-based Soviet Military Institute for Foreign Languages, which is a well-known training school for officers, diplomats, and, in some cases, spies. He then started his career serving with the Red Army as a translator in Angola. So basically KGB. Or KGB affiliated, at least, yes. <laughs> exactly. And he learned Portuguese in about 10 months. Uh, the Russian military expedited the process. It was a very intensive course, you know, the kind of language training spies usually get. And it turned out that Victor had a knack for languages, actually. He was a very fast learner, so off to Angola he went. So Portuguese is still the official language of Angola? Yes, yes, it still is the official language of Angola, and it was introduced during the Portuguese colonial era, of course, but they have indigenous languages too, like Umbundu, Kimbundu, and Kinogo, but if you know Portuguese, you are golden. So basically, you can get around, yeah. So Victor realized pretty quickly the money-making potential in Africa. There's always a war there. When the Cold War ended, huge caches of Soviet weapons were basically cast to the breeze from AK-47s, rockets, tanks, helicopters, missiles, and grenades, all that stuff sitting around gathering dust, waiting for the war against the West that was now never going to be fought. So people like Victor 
see this as a time to make friends with former Soviet commanders who can't call Moscow for guidance anymore. Yes, so when the Soviet Union broke up, basically military equipment ended up scattered across 15 new nations created by the dissolution, and these countries had neither the money with which to keep an army paid, nor the infrastructure to keep inventory on the weapons they just inherited. Viktor Boots saw an opportunity. He assembled a fleet of ex-Soviet cargo planes, massive Antonov and Ilushin aircraft, and began making shipments of arms and other goods all over the world. And I think it's fair to say a regular soldier slash translator who's not connected to the secret services and politicians cannot just willy-nilly throw together a fleet of Antonovs and <laughs> just like become an arms trafficker overnight. It's like you don't email your resume to HR for this. I mean, these people operate with tacit approval of those in power who want their cut of the proceeds, I'm sure. Oh, for sure. 100%. And look, governments, not only the Russians, all of them, they have an interest to cause worse in certain parts of the globe, but they want to keep their hands clean sometimes, at least officially on paper. So they need someone like Victor. They need to use a freelancer, not the government's armies. I mean, when a massive arms dealing operation is being built, it's not just one government that oversees it. It's a bunch of world readers deciding what happens, where and how. It's international relations, basically. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> and so there's a demand for people like Victor. I mean, he was also transporting UN peacekeepers in his planes, too. <laughs> yes, and that's kind of crazy, you know, and nobody accused him of smuggling United Nations peacekeepers. So right. let's say it like it is. The world's biggest weapon manufacturers and suppliers are the United States, United Kingdom, Russia, France, and China. And they are also the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council. So our boy Victor starts his arm dealing business in 1991, around the same time he meets Ala, his current wife. She was a fashion designer married to someone else at the time, and Victor had a girlfriend too. After her divorce, he went to visit her in St. Petersburg with his girlfriend, and according to Ala, quote, that was that, the girlfriend returned to Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, I will not lie. I have left one girl asleep in my house to go meet another girl in the same night in my younger years, but it's not a good idea. In fact, it is a plan fraught with peril. I would say so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Never did I think it was a good idea to take one of them to meet the other, however. I mean, maybe they compete against each other or maybe they decide to fight you together. I wonder if Victor considered that. But either way, I guess that's why he's the Lord of War and I am sitting in a closet recording a podcast. But jackass move on Victor's part either way. Not much class, yes. But then again, Ala herself was at the time, despite being a designer, and we should clarify that. I think that was what she called herself. She was no Alexander McQueen, okay? So I think Ala was into fashion and stuff like that, but she wasn't really well-known or anything. So Allah wasn't too classy either. I have to say, I mean, there is a documentary about the boots and it reveals that around that time, one of Allah's dreams was to go to Paris and spit from the top of the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, she's the second girl from that night, not the first one to sleep upstairs, definitely. But uh, Allah Boot was born in St. Petersburg, Russia, in 1970. She and Victor have been married since 1992, and they are still together, unlike the story in Lord of War. We'll talk about the movie in a bit as we go. 
They have one child, Elisaveta, who they call Lisa. Hopefully she doesn't take after her mom, because for somebody who's into fashion, I mean, Paris is the capital of fashion. If that's your dream, I mean, if that's it's, what you yeah. want to do when you go to Paris. It's very to low brow, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. So, with all these guns to sell, Victor picked Sarja Airport in the United Arab Emirates because it's a free trade zone in a strategically important geographic location. And he was exporting armament and consumer goods as well, like textiles, radios, TVs, computers, to former Soviet republics at this point. Then he built a maintenance facility at the airport and put together a team and he would remake the interior of planes, everything. You know, he was a very handy person. He knew how to deal with this stuff. And it was a maintenance operation as well as exporting things. He loved to film what he was doing. So there is ample footage about this period and a lot of his trips to Africa. Allah films a lot of footage as well of what they were doing. It's all in the documentary, which is called The Notorious Mr. Boot. And one plane, this is on film, right? One plane, seven hours before flight, was all torn down on the inside. A disaster, right? And in seven hours, it had brand new interior, looked great. And at this time, as they were living in Sharjah in the UAE, his daughter Lisa was born. And they moved from an apartment to a rented villa and started making more money. Then he got a boat and so on. Life was looking good. Money was flowing. Victor claims there was no arms dealing during this time. But funny thing about that. He was hiring ex-military people from the Russian translation school the whole time. <laughs> I mean, if you look at pictures of Viktor and Slava Grishny, his quote-unquote project manager for exports at the time, these are not office guys. They are hard men. No, they look like they can inflict pain. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's got that Stalin mustache. Look at him. While in the UAE, Victor kept his ear on the ground in Africa, and just then, Jonas Savimbi accused the Angola government of cheating in the country's first free elections and warned of a return to civil war. Savimbi has spent 31 years fighting to rule his country, and the danger was that he'd now urge his army of supporters to abandon the democratic process and return to the guns. And we see a very fast transition from textile experts to this situation. Yes. Yes, and Boot says about it, I offered to Svimbi a training program and logistics support. I sent Slava and some Moscow guys. <laughs> <laughs> and then Slava says, We flew out to South Africa and landed in central Angola. They had a lot of weapons left from Soviet times. We trained them to maintain their weapons, not to fight, but to use the weapons they yeah, had. Yeah, and... yeah, 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 whatever. <laughs> Basically... I mean, like, how are you going to use the weapons if not for fighting? Exactly. <laughs> what are you going to do with AK-47 except shoot someone in the face? So that's how UNITA starts its guerrilla war, all enabled by weapons and logistics help from Victor. Wait, what's UNITA again? Okay, so it's the National Union for the Total Independence of Angola. And incidentally, a good example of how the lines get blurred after the Cold War ideology kind of fades away. So they were a nationalist organization fighting Portuguese colonial rule with help from Mao's China in the 60s, but then they turned around and fought against Marxist groups with the help from the U.S. from the late 70s until 2002. So, in any case, all of these rebel groups have something about freedom or liberation in their name, but they kill as many civilians as each other, so it's, as they say, a bath of blood in these places. Bloodbath, you mean? <laughs> as our man Andre Baptiste would say, yes, but I prefer it my way. <laughs> 
Yes, guys. Small digression from our story. Victor Booth was the inspiration for the movie Lord of War, like we said, with Nicolas Cage and Jared Leto. And it just so happens this is a movie both Neil and I love. And as you see, even the title of the movie is not Warlord, is Lord of War, because the character Andre Baptiste, president of Liberia in the movie, liked to say it that way. Like Hunt of Witches instead of Witch Hunt, Lord of War. <laughs> and Sandra has that sketchy former Soviet dictator speak too. When she leaves the dog park with the boy, Odie, she says, come on, mama, let's go with speed, with speed. <laughs> yes, I could say let's go fast, but I prefer it my way, like Andre Baptiste. Yes. <laughs> and credit where it's due. Eamon Walker played Andre, and as good an actor as Jared Leto is, and I'm sure as hot as all of you ladies think he is, Andre he is. Baptiste is the best character in this movie by far. Everybody needs to see Lord of War. If you have not seen it, go watch it. Yes, I agree. I totally recommend it too. And Eamon Walker was amazing. Yes, he's also very hot. Yeah, so back to our Victor Booth, who tries to justify supplying ruthless African dictators with weapons and training. Uh, his right-hand guy, Slava, explained in interviews that in Angola, the roads were badly damaged or simply non-existent, so transport had to be done by air. What a surprise, I think. Yes. <laughs> I think for Victor, Africa was a playground. There was so much to be gained from, not just selling weapons to both sides fighting in a war, for example, which he did, but all commerce for supermarkets uh, like tilapia fish, chicken, and even flowers. So there were lots of legitimate reasons for all these planes he owned to be there. To me, this is a question of morality, not legality. All these exports and all his papers were within the law. That's the thing. But what he was doing was immoral. Totally unethical and wrong. Yes. I mean, I'm not going to defend him on moral grounds, but there are no ethical, clean billionaires anywhere either. Uh, which, ironically, the Russian word for con, by the way, is business with a Z. So... <laughs> Maybe they have a better, uh, shall we say, theoretical grasp of capitalism than some of our leaders do. Putin does, I think. Yeah, he does. Oh, he's such an evil prick. Let's not get into that. And look, as he was dealing arms in the Congo, he was also friends with United Nations representatives, had drinks with some, and they'd run into each other at the shady hotels there. A former UN arms investigator, Brian Johnson Thomas, met Victor on the airfield in Kisingani in Congo in 1996. He had been doing some work for an airline which was delivering aid for the Red Cross and it so happened that they were the only two white men in town that night so they had a few beers at the hotel bar. The local beer in Congo, by the way, is called Primus and it comes in one liter bottles. <laughs> uh, not a beer drinker. Whiskey for me. As another wartime hero of ours, Hunter Thompson said, we're not looking for breakfast. We need strong drink. I'm a whiskey person, so you can have mine. So basically, if you have two Primus beers from Congo, you're already going to be tipsy. So anyway, they talked about politics, climate change, and Victor was a very good conversationalist, apparently. That's what Brian said. And, you know, just like we are here and in our premium episodes as well. <laughs> yeah, guys, we do two premium episodes per month in addition to our four free ones. And we got a pretty nice selection of premium episodes waiting for you if you want them. You can get these premium episodes by going to dubiouspod.com and clicking on the Become a Patron button at the top of the page or by clicking the link in the episode notes. 
That way you can support us and the podcast because we have no team of editors. We don't have any sound engineers and so on. It's just us and we work on our episodes whenever we can, mostly on nights and weekends. And not only do you get the premium episodes, but you'll also get our public episodes ad-free as well. And in the case of Victor's premium merchandise, Victor was now running the largest airborne freight operation from West Africa and Liberia across to the Congo. He worked with a wholesaler in the arms trade named Peter Mershev from Sarja in the UAE. After the Soviet collapse, the Bulgarians especially were looking to unload guns because you don't just retool overnight from making AK-47s to making like laundry equipment. Right. And there's a valley in Bulgaria where there are, besides perfume factories, two big gun factories. And there's video in the documentary we mentioned of Boot and the Bulgarian guy, Mirchev, going to a kind of very exclusive auction and then having a meal and meeting with other gun people, testing tanks, RPGs, commando knives. In a nutshell, business was going great. Boot's wife, Ella, even organized a safari for the Mircev family, which I don't know if they killed animals on that safari. I don't want to think about it. I like to think not, as these people were filming everything, and I think they would have definitely filmed that if it happened, just to brag to their friends, but I don't know. In any case, I know for sure Boot was transporting uh, wildlife to zoos and stuff in his planes, which breaks my heart, because I feel like those animals need to be left alone in their natural habitats, and humans need to mind their own fuck business. But then comes Afghanistan in 1995. Of Afghanistan, Victor said, the most beautiful sight I ever saw was the blood red poppies blooming in the spring. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a term in the business that uh, we like to call a dead leg. And no, that's not what it looks like when Andre Baptiste chops your limbs off with a machete. It's what happens when you deliver something on an airplane and there's nothing to fly back. So you wind up just flying an empty airplane back to where it started from, wasting fuel, wasting pilot time. It's a loser all around in terms of profit and loss. So Victor is kind of referring to synergies, as one might say. And another story along those lines that came to me uh, while we were discussing this episode. So there was some special forces guy when I started an aviation charity In 2017, we were doing hurricane relief, and they showed up to ask us to see our data. I was like, what? I don't have any data. It's like, "What? who are you guys and what do you want? So it turns out they were a friend with one of the former military guys that started our charity, and they had helicopters, and they were going to do a similar thing as us. They wanted to scout out flooded roads and bring emergency supplies to people who were landlocked, which is, you know, that's a noble exercise. That's what we were doing. Later that week, when we were in Florida for the next hurricane, uh, we got a text and there was a video from these guys and they had taken a cell phone video of them leaving a harbor in Panama in a boat just full of boxes marked powdered sugar. You mean like they might have well labeled it cocaine because... (laughs) Well, it might be powdered sugar. I mean, they're bringing food to people in need. You know, they're good guys. You know, it's the best way to break the law to do it in the open. Yes. You know, like that. Exactly. It's it's, who's going to stop some people who are going to help hurricane victims. Man, we got to do an episode about hurricane. You got some stories. So in any case, 
No reason an empty airplane can't take heroin as payment for guns and fly that back home, thus eliminating those dead legs. After all, that's what those guys like Barry Seal flying guns for Oliver North and the CIA did in South America. Exact same thing. Totally. Now to clarify, Victor was never accused of transporting or being involved in any way with illegal drugs. Not even a hint of that. We're just assuming, probably correctly, but there is no proof he did smuggle heroin in his planes or cocaine or anything. Now, in Afghanistan, things took a wrong turn. On August 3rd, 1995, Victor gets a phone call. He later said, One of my planes transporting 30 tons of ammunition was intercepted by Taliban forces. I meet with Mullah Omar, leader of Taliban, to negotiate the release of the pilots, but f Taliban hate me because I flight for government in Afghanistan. <laughs> At the time, the Afghan government was planning an offensive against the Taliban. And this is what Boot says. My pilots were held hostage for more than a year. Then Masood helped me organize an escape plan. During Friday prayers, my men made the move. So he gets <laughs> back his pilots, who, to be clear, also look like pretty hard guys, and flies them back to Sharjah. They look like they can hurt you, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, most pilots are pretty... I mean, you sit in a chair and you push buttons. It's not like you need to be Conan to do this, but... In any case, probably fair to say <laughs> that he was not in cahoots with the Taliban after all. More like he had to give Masood some kind of payment to get his guys back. But there was no charge against Victor, and the CIA was all over the region then, too, also watching him. Yes, they were all over the ground in Afghanistan back then. And look, a lot of deep cover CIA people on the ground in Afghanistan at the time, and, you know, even now, don't fly their weapons in. They buy them locally. So there's that. Everyone needs a good arms yeah, dealer. It's, it's a necessary <laughs> service. That way. <laughs> at this point, all is fine. Victor's company is doing great. He has his men back, and he celebrates his 30th birthday on January 13, 1997. He even says, by 25, I was millionaire. My business growing every year. By 30, I had an empire. And they show a party in the documentary we mentioned, and his army buddies slash employees made him a song, and it went like, Who's the great man? Went to Angola many times and sold a bunch of shady stuff. Boot, boot, boot. <laughs> <laughs> What's even funnier is there's video of all of this. Victor and his wife, Ala, filmed all kinds of stuff. They filmed flights, guns, trips to Africa, uh, family. I presume that he thought he had nothing to hide. I mean, you can't just run a weapons empire if the powers that be don't want you to, right? Exactly. So, on to the Congo. Again, Victor is not a good guy. He has plenty of blood on his hands. In the 2000s, it was another bath of blood in the Congo. And Victor was arming multiple factions in the country's civil wars. After the assassination of President Lauren Kabila, former businessman Jean-Pierre Bemba's Uganda-backed group, the Movement for the Liberation of the Congo, made friends with Victor. And these guys were guilty of Rwanda-type war crimes on a smaller scale, all with Victor's guns. A journalist at the time said that Victor loved to be in war zones. He wouldn't even sleep in a hotel, but rather in a tent by the airfield. Um, nice scenery in Africa, I suppose, but also maybe keeping an eye on the merchandise. So <laughs> Probably. Yes. Yeah. There's a video of him taking photos of landscapes, local people, 
He's basically acting like a tourist in one of the most dangerous places on the planet. This guy is something else, but that's why we say here at Dubious, good guys are boring and villains are fascinating because it's yes. true. And <laughs> look, as we said, he loved the camera to use it too, not necessarily be in front of it. He filmed a lot. He even filmed Bemba visiting the town of Aruk. And this was supposed to be the first real election after Mambutu left the country. So Bemba was visiting little towns, you know, telling people he'd provide electricity, medicine, campaigning, basically, right? Building up his image. But it was well known what Bemba was doing with prisoners of war. You know, like there was rape, there was looting and even cannibalism. And those are the stories that ended him up in prison at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. He ended up being indicted for war crimes and crimes against humanity, okay? So that's the company Victor was keeping, and this is how he made most of his money. Now, it's fair to say that this could have gone either way. Bemba could have brought peace to the areas he controlled, and then Victor could have jumped in to bring telecom, agricultural business, coal. He wanted to create more free trade areas in Africa. So basically, he wanted to make even more money in the future while helping developing the area, not only money from guns. So there's that. Yeah. At this time, the UN had a profile on Victor. But when asked by journalists while he was in the Congo with Bemba, he said, I'm not an arms dealer. I just rent airplanes. It's not my concern what winds up in them. And maybe he has a point, technically. In his case, at least, the paperwork was all legal. But he does meet the finest people in the most prominent baths of blood. Congo, Somalia, Sudan, Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi. He was in all of those places at exactly the wrong time. You know, I don't believe in coincidences. And as I said, legally, he might be completely clean, morally... Uh-uh, not so much. The journalist who took the first public photos of Victor is Dirk Draunlas. He was there for the village visit of Bemba, by the way, and he said that when his photographer Avim aimed the camera at Victor, his bodyguard signaled he'll cut their throats. <laughs> I mean, he was sharpening his knife at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I'll go out on a limb and say that regular businessmen don't have their bodyguards sharpening their knives in public and threatening journalists, right? <laughs> like they might have one less limb in a minute. That's why I did the go out on a limb pun. <laughs> you see what I did there? <laughs> yes, I see. So the bodyguard was actually interviewed. And he said, it's in bad taste to photograph someone secretly without consent, which... Okay. He's not, <laughs> he's not, not wrong. Yeah. He's not wrong, but gotta love the selective morality, huh? So he asked Victor if he should confiscate the photos, but Victor said, no, let him go. The photos were published, so I guess the bodyguard story checks out. Yes, and the journalist still has all his limbs, so... <laughs> yes, thankfully. Yes, and by the way, the village they visited, Apparently, many of them got slaughtered after Victor left by Bemba. And Victor was involved in the tragedies in Uganda as well, where he made President Masavenia give him $8 million that he felt he was owed in transportation costs. <laughs> At this time, while all of the civil wars were going on in Central, Eastern and Northern Africa, Victor, his wife Ala and their daughter Lisa moved to South Africa, Johannesburg, I think, so that he can be closer to his job, basically. 
Victor wanted to recreate there what he did in the UAE in Sharjah, but the company he created here encountered some issues with the South African government who probably wanted too big of a cut. Either way, things didn't pan out, but he made a good friend or what he thought was a good friend there at the time, Andrew Smulian. This guy was supposed to help him build a new company. He was also a pilot. And even when that project failed, they remained friends and had other business together. Smulian was a British citizen, by the way, and also an arms dealer. So remember the name Andrew Smulian, though he's important in our story. So from here on, things don't go well for Victor. His family was attacked by armed men in their home who only wanted phones and laptops. Mm. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) The next day, his office was attacked. Victor's family left South Africa shortly thereafter, but Victor continued his business in Liberia, Rwanda, Kenya, and so on. He even mentioned making a documentary about himself and his travels. It would probably be very successful. (laughs) I would watch it. (laughs) Look, I believe the guy, he was filming almost all the time. And at some point, he was filming Rwanda soldiers whom he sold equipment to, learning how to put on hazmat suits. And these were the most ridiculous suits. The head masks were white and looked like the scream killer mask guy had a child with a stormtrooper from, from Star Wars. They looked hilarious. Boot even made a joke that if they went to battle dressed like that, the enemy, which by the way was their own people actually, the enemy would die of heart attacks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's funny and they're laughing, but look, the question is, why did they need these? Unless they are using sarin or other banned chemical weapons on people. So again, his customers... Not good guys. Uh, Yeah, they're not good guys either. And then the walls started to close in a bit. Attention from the UN and the press started in 1998. Every time there's a war in the developing world, there's Victor. And the UN profile says openly that he has a very high position in the KGB. No kidding. So, (laughs) yes, right. The British Foreign Office Minister at the time actually gave him the nickname Merchant of Death, just as Andre would have said it. Yes. Victor's UN arms investigator bro, who shared these big beers with him in the war zones, said that less than 5% of Victor's cargo was guns, though. He also said that governments were reluctant to enforce strict gun smuggling laws because, well... That would impede their own arms dealing, which, of course, is true. Yes, I mean, who makes the most money out of arms dealing? The five permanent member countries of the United Nations Security Council. So, but anyway, unrelated fun fact. Victor is not only an FSB agent, but also very interested in space exploration, galaxies, black holes, and so on. There's footage of him in an African countryside making bread. He's a good cook, too. Like he was making homemade bread and he was talking about space and the entropy theory, how a galaxy will eventually fall back from expansion and obliterate itself. He says, quote, a system is always heading towards self-destruction. Very prophetic words. (laughs) Victor really is a gentleman and a scholar. And a murderer. (laughs) Yes. I mean, not directly, but still. (laughs) But the unfortunate turn came for Victor in 2001, 9-11 to be exact. All eyes were suddenly on airplanes, and what was in them, more specifically. Also, as we remember, Putin was making friends with the West at that time. There was that George Bush Jr. ridiculous, 
I looked into the man's <laughs> eyes and saw his soul thing. Yeah, you remember that? Yes, of course. How could I forget so, it? Unfortunately for Victor, he became an eyesore that Putin had to distance himself from as Putin wanted to play along with the West's increased air security ideas, at least on paper. Yeah, before he shut down that airplane in Ukraine. On the, yeah, he and smuggled, his... and, yeah, and don't forget smuggled MiGs to Syria under an Antonov. There was that Yes, too, carrying yes. sarin gas, so war crimes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah yes. Putin is a... He's a big proponent of air security. Yes. He has lots of it. Yes, and suddenly, because of 9-11 and the shift in the politics against terror, Victor Booth became persona non grata, the Sheikh Latifa's father, the missing royal princesses we talked about, kicked him out of the UAE at the request of the UK and US, and his planes were no longer welcome anywhere on any airport. Don't you find it, say, dubious that he became a real target only after the 9-11 attacks, with which, let's be honest, he had nothing to do. It's like we're saying, oh, you can sell guns that kill hundreds of thousands of black civilian people in Africa? Fine, go ahead. But after 9-11, Victor is suddenly a liability. Yeah, very dubious. And why? I mean, nobody cared about gun smugglers in the developing world before, and this guy had nothing to do with 9-11. So there's some hypocrisy in the feds setting up that offshore sting operation to eventually catch Victor, yeah? Yes, also, and this I think is very important, the standard of evidence you needed to call somebody a terrorist or in partnership with terrorism almost disappeared after 9-11. So they created this boogeyman idea, but definitely as dirty as he was, you know, he had absolutely nothing to do with Al-Qaeda or Bin Laden. I mean, the Bush family had more business ties with them than Booth ever had. Jamal Khashoggi had more ties with Bin Laden. They were very good friends when they were young, and then they grew apart as Bin Laden became radicalized. And, you know, by the way, Khashoggi's cousin was a big merchant of death too, an arms dealer. And to clarify, Khashoggi was a good journalist, a great person. His murder was horrifying, no doubt about that. MBS is a murderer. I guess what I'm trying to say is that things are complicated and not always black and white. There's a lot of gray. This is the one thing that I'm thankful for and that my master's degree in international relations taught me, just how to see all these nuances of gray, right? And not take things as black and white, because what happened here was a bit of an echo chamber. U.S. intelligence would kind of leak rumors about Victor to journalists, and then the journalists would write about it, and then the intelligence agencies would use those articles as open source factual stuff and make it part of the whole story. Not saying Victor Booth is an angel, far from me to say that, but he surely was not planning terrorist attacks in the U.S. No, I don't believe so. And... The press, of course, said exactly what they were told to say. The biggest arms supplier to Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, apparently, was Victor Boot. Not really. The vast majority of his guns and weapons were sold in Africa to people that nobody cared about in the Western governments. So, Victor's not a good guy, but he's not a terrorist, and he didn't have anything to do with 9-11, I don't think. Either way, not a terrorist in the sense we have been taught to think about terrorists, right? And I'm torn. I can see his side of the argument. I mean, if someone rents a plane from me, that person is responsible for the cargo. I can also see the other side. He knew, you know, he knew what his planes were used for. So what he did was morally wrong, horrifyingly wrong, but not legally wrong. They couldn't get him on anything, so they had to use entrapment. He did a New York Times article and a photo shoot, and maybe that was his step too far. He loved the limelight too much, 
I think they decided it was time to replace him with someone more incognito. Anyway, Victor and his family returned to Moscow, and on the other side of the Atlantic, the DEA was planning a sting operation to make an example out of him. They called it Operation Relentless. <laughs> Such a bad name. I mean, come on, really? This guy that you didn't care about now, suddenly it's like, oh, Operation Relentless. They have no future in podcasting. Robert Zakariasiewicz and Wim Brown were the two lead agents on the case. Wim Brown actually looks a bit like Valentine, the DEA agent in Lord of War. <laughs> and the penetration point they found was... Andrew Smulian, we talked about him, right, who had dealings with Victor before, and he was also a pilot in South Africa, as we said, and he had managed one of Victor's companies in there. Apparently, he wasn't so lucky in his own businesses and probably had some resentment on Boot. Most importantly, Boot still trusted him, considered him a friend. So in 2008, Andrew Smulian, undercover for the DEA, goes to Moscow to talk to Victor. He knew Victor had two planes he wanted to sell, so he pretended he could help him find a buyer. Smulian left Moscow with a basic understanding that Boot would meet with him in Thailand and together they would hear the proposal of the buyers, who were Farkreps, in reality DEA agents undercover. FARC is the Revolutionary Force of Colombia, which the State Department had classified at the time as terrorist. In the meantime, they revoked that classification. And then Victor and Smulian actually met with these undercover DA guys in Bangkok. Smulian set him up. And this is the conversation recorded by the DEA, the most important part of it anyway. Ricardo, we need whatever help you can give us. I need all the stuff you can offer us. Victor Boot. Okay, so then let's make a list of all your needs. Missile. Anti-aircraft. That's what I urgently need. Light weaponry. The AKs. The AKs we're going to get from Bulgaria. I want to kill those gringo sons of bitches. They're not going to kill us in our sleep anymore. How can we defend ourselves with a rifle against a Blackhawk or an Apache? I've understood the situation well. Very, very urgent because they're killing your people. So the DEA agents arrested Victor in Thailand. The Thai government does not recognize FARC as a terrorist organization, so there was no motivation in their laws for Victor to be extradited to the U.S. Victor probably should have been sent back to Russia at that point, but somebody in the Thai government got a phone call, and he was, in fact, extradited to the U.S. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the Thai government was really planning to send him back to Russia. That was the plan. It was made public. And then the next day they recanted. So, yeah, probably you're right. And look, I want to reiterate that Victor Boot is not a good person by any stretch of the imagination. But you can't arrest someone based on intent alone without the crime. It's insanity. For example, I can say that tomorrow I'm going to go and sell one ton of cocaine. I cannot be arrested for saying that, not until I act on it, until I'm caught red-handed with the cocaine and the buyer. I mean, they can put me under surveillance, yes, I guess, but not actually arrest me and put me in jail. Or let's be honest, how many people say, oh, I'm going to kill you when they fight? You just can't arrest people based on intent or what they say or what you interpret as being intent. Well, the feds love their entrapment. It's their favorite pastime. So... His wife, Alla, stood by him, though. Uh, she still does. Their relationship seems strong. And we don't know much about Victor's father, Anatoly, but his mother, Raisa, has spoken out in defense of her son, too, publicly appealing to the Biden administration for his release just last year. Yes, so in 2011, Victor Boot was charged with conspiracy with intent to kill American citizens, intent to kill American officials, and sheltering terrorists. 
to me, I'm not a lawyer. I did study some law, but none of these charges ring true to me. No, absolutely not. And he was convicted and sentenced to 25 years in prison based on trumped up charges without committing a crime, basically just talking about it. I think Taboot showed little emotion as the jury's unanimous guilty verdict was read out. Mr. Taboot, do you wish to say anything to the court before sentence is imposed? I'm innocent. I don't commit any crime. There is no crime to sit and talk. If you're going to apply the same you know, standards to me, then you're going to, you know, jail all those arms dealers in America who are selling the arms and ending up killing Americans. It's a double standard. It's a hypocrisy. I want to go home. I don't commit any crime. I'm innocent. Thank you, Mr. Boot. Now, I have a lot to say. I begin with the nature and circumstances of the offense. Until the DEA went after Boot, he had not committed a crime chargeable in an American court in all his years as an arms dealer. And but for the approach made through this determined sting operation, there is no reason to believe that Boot would ever have committed the charged crime. Based on review of the statutory factors, I intend to impose a required mandatory jail term of 25 years in custody. So basically, the judge sentenced him because the jury found him guilty, but even the judge openly stated that she did not like it. Everybody wanted revenge after 9-11, and a lot of federal agencies who had gotten lazy over the years decided they needed to go out and look tough and quote-unquote, do something. So even though the law was on his side, Victor was convicted and off to a U.S. prison. Yeah, isn't it dubious how the law can be bent to make it do whatever we want to do with it when interests dictate it, and yet we clutch our pearls when Putin does the exact same thing to our citizens? So for this story, what are you going to put on your dubimeter? I'd say a 9.5 because most people have no idea that this guy was indeed wrongfully arrested, detained and sentenced to 25 years in an American prison. There are similarities between us and Russia if we are willing to look in the mirror. Not nice ones. Yeah, I agree. The whole story, spies on both sides, Brittany Griner. Hopefully the swap goes through and she and Paul Whelan come home. But I got to admit, I also hope that Victor and Ala get to spend their last few years together making their documentary about themselves. Yes, and I think they're still young enough. And look, I don't feel pity for him. He's not a good person. I'm just saying the law was not respected here. And if you guys think that 9.5 on our dubimeter dubiousness scale is too high or too low of a number, let us know on our social media. We'd love to know how you'd rate this story. We are a dubious pod on all platforms. That's it for this episode. And thank you for listening, everyone. See you next time.